This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. Happy Halloween, everyone, and welcome to Tactics, where speech isn't violence, tolerance isn't love, and disagreement isn't hate. Welcome to the program. I'm Caleb Cockwit, or at least for tonight, your host, live from the Mines of Moria, Gandalf the Grey. So, this was probably a horrible idea. I do the annual Halloween thing every year, but uh, I gotta say, doing it in the wig and beard is going to be a challenge, but hopefully you guys can still hear me. Uh, it has caused some complications, but hey, I'm just thrilled to be here with you, Gandalf the Grey, wandering through Moria and bringing you the latest news of the day, and we've got a lot coming up, not just on this show, but in the upcoming week, because some of you may not have heard this. Some of you may not know about this at all, but uh, there is a rumor that there might actually be an election coming up, and it might actually be a pretty important one. So don't worry, we've got you covered right here on News Radio 1440 and Tactics. And we're actually going to be bringing you extra content, bonus content, because of course that's just the kind of guy I am. I'm super generous. I mean, for goodness sake, I'm a wizard. So that's why we're able to bring you all of the extra content is because of my own magic. So on Monday, because I've done this every single election day, I know that I, I started doing the show just on Tuesday and Thursday, but we are actually going to be having a show on Monday because it is the eve of an election, and we're going to be doing Ballot Palooza just like we always do. So I'm going to be going through each of the ballot measures, each of the amendments. Uh, I'm going to be going through each of the elections, what I think will happen, what I think actually should happen. So going to be a fun time going to be a lot to go over on that, so be sure to check out that show on Monday, and also election night coverage. Going to be a big one. There's something in the works right now. I don't want to overpromise. I don't want to get your hopes up, but it looks like we may actually be on location, and I'll, dis I'll disclose where that might be later, but uh, we may not even actually be in studio. We may actually be on location bringing you election night coverage, so very much looking forward to that. Hopefully, we'll be able to pull that off. I'm kind of in communication with a couple of people that are trying to make that happen, so we're working on it. If, if we can't do it, we'll let you know. We'll still have election night coverage either way. It'll either be here or it'll be there. Either way, it's going to be somewhere, and we're going to be giving you all of the latest election night coverage with all of my commentary and the commentary of any of the guests that I'm able to bring on. So, be sure to watch those shows. Seriously. Because, you know, I got to eat. So, let's go on and go to, since it is Halloween, we're going to start with that Halloween in the great state of Alabama. And one of the great things about Halloween in Alabama is, Alabama, the best thing about Alabama has always been the people. I love the people here. I love how creative they are. I mean, we've got a long history of things like art and music. And one of the best accomplishments in the state of Alabama, I'm convinced, and it's only appropriate that we celebrate it on Halloween, is what has to be the best, by far, the best Halloween costume. Now, people have been dressing up as politicians for a really, 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 really long time on Halloween. It's become something of a tradition. Nothing new there. But it's great to see somebody, a young person, interested in politics, you've heard of Mini-Me, right? You know, from the, uh, the uh, is that one Goldfinger? I think that one's Austin Powers Goldfinger. 
Well, say hello to Mini Meemaw. There we go. Yes, Mini Meemaw. That is so spot on. It's freaky. I don't know whose kid this is. Jim Ziegler, our state auditor, actually shared this. I have no idea whose kid this is, but that kid is clearly being raised right. I mean, that is that costume is so freaking spot on, it freaks me out a little bit. In fact, it, the suit, the, the, the pantsuit and the shirt and everything and the little auburn mask and the glasses, that's all cute and that's impressive. But to me, the thing that really brings the whole thing together is that wig. I, finding a gray wig is not a challenge. Finding a gray wig for a child that's hair is styled exactly like Governor Kay Ivey's. I don't know how they pulled that off, but that's dang impressive. And I figured I had to share that because that just made me chuckle. I'm sure that it uh, made you guys chuckle, but that, again, just props. I don't know who came up with that, but usually I'm not for kids being involved in any kind of, of politics or whatever. I was like, let kids be kids and then let them grow up and uh, then be all depressed and angry about politics. But man, slow clap on that one. Fantastic. This is why Halloween in Alabama is fun. And here's the thing. When it comes to Halloween, there's an awful lot of people trying to cancel Halloween. There, there are several states, there's nothing like this in Alabama, but there are several states that are saying that we need to just not do Halloween, that you, can't get, you can only go to certain people's house, uh, churches don't need to do trunk or treat, anything like that. And I find that whole thing quite vexing and bizarre because... There are a lot of events that it makes sense to cancel. I, I understand why they couldn't have, like, mass crowds at the World Series as much as, well, the outcome of the World Series was enough to depress me, but the crowd size, it's depressing to not see a full stadium of cheering fans, but I get it. I understand. Even though it's outside, even though the risk of spreading it is pretty small, if you were to create a scenario where people would be at least more likely to spread the virus, it would be either at a ball game where everybody's packed in really close to one another and sweating on each other, or another event where people are packed in very close and sweating on one another, like, you know, a violent riot in Philadelphia. Those are the two things that if you were trying to design an event to see if the virus could be spread outside, it would be those. And so I get the reason that they had to be a little extra cautious on those things. I, I do. I genuinely understand that. But Halloween's not like that. You can have large crowds of people, but that's not a necessity. And I'm starting to lose my hat here. Uh, I, I do understand why there are certain things that you would have to be cautious of, but Halloween, think about this. First of all, it's almost completely kid-based. Yes, adults get together for Halloween, but you, you can't really cancel parties because if you do, they're going to do it anyway. And so there's no reason in making a, a law against that. And, and most of the places that are trying to ban Halloween, they're specifically banning trick-or-treating. So it's very odd because kids who are very unlikely to get this virus, and even if they get the virus, there's so far been no study that shows that they do spread it. It just seems odd to me to a, such a kid-based... Uh, event, a, a kid-based holiday like this. I don't know why they chose to ban it like this. It just seems like a, an, an odd choice. And on top of that, 
everyone's wearing masks. Now, obviously, my Gandalf beard wouldn't quite count as a face covering, and I understand that, but if there were ever an event or a holiday in the year that you could do while wearing a mask, it would be Halloween. And so I'm just a little bit baffled as to why, out of all the holidays that they could have chosen to cancel, which I'm not for them canceling any holidays. Like I think that the restrictions that they're now saying that they can actually, in some states, go into police can go into people's homes during Thanksgiving to break up large crowds. I think no, I, I take that back. I think that's not in a state. I think that actually happened in in. Um, uh, I think the there was. Word of that in England, I think I'm mixing up stories here. There was word that they were going to do that in England, and then another state floated the idea. I don't think they actually passed it. I'll have to look into that. You can fact check me on that one later. But th that one at least kind of makes sense. You're probably going to be around old people, and you're probably going to be in close proximity of them eating for an extended period of time. Like, should the government get involved in it? Absolutely no. But at least with that one, there is a, a conceivably a pretty good risk of spread. With Halloween, it's a bunch of kids outside wearing masks. It's just very bizarre of all the holidays that you would think would be fine during a pandemic. Halloween would be one of them. Uh, and all you got to do is, uh, as long as the candy is outside for an extended period of time, there's really no danger to it because of how quickly sunlight kills this thing. So it's it's just a very odd thing that people are wanting to cancel it. But in honor of Halloween, before we get on to some of the more pressing news of the day, I thought this would be kind of fun. I posted this earlier on Twitter and it got a lot of response, so I thought y'all might enjoy it as well. By the way, if you do want to follow me on Twitter, you can always do that at Tactics Radio and uh, get all of my content. You can see some of my thoughts, things that don't wind up in videos. So be sure to do that. And if you are watching on YouTube or Facebook, be sure to like and subscribe. That's always super helpful. But since it is Halloween, I thought it would be kind of fun to count down the top 10 M&M types. I wanted to go with flavors, but I think I'm going to go with types. So here we go. The top 10 M&M types. The Tactics Top 10. Alright, so usually this is the part of the segment where I go over the rules, but there really are no rules for this one. So it's just it just has to be an M&M type. It can be discontinued, it can be current. Uh, and this is just a personal preference, and if your favorite flavor doesn't wind up here, I'm sorry, you just have terrible taste. Well, that or I've just never been able to try that particular type of M&M. So let's go ahead and get started with number 10. Number 10. Number 10, M&M's Minis. The flavor's pretty much the same, but especially being a little kid, it was really fun to get that little plastic tube and just dump the entire thing in your mouth. Now, it was a it was not a slow burn. You just kind of put the whole tube in your mouth and chewed it up, and then you were done. So that was the other reason that they wound up so low on the list. It's a fun little thing, and they're especially good in, like, baking or if you're going to add them to yogurt. Frankly, the fact that they're gone so quickly is probably the reason they wound up so low on the list. But still, uh, M&M's Minis... Still a fun time. I'm, I'm glad that they have that variety. Number nine. Number nine is the one that started it all, the original M&M. They're crunchy, they're chocolate, they melt in your mouth, not in your hand. What's not to like? I mean, there's really nothing to, to moan about or be upset about when you're talking about the original M&Ms. Number eight. Number eight on the list 
is going to be the pretzel. I don't know if you've tried the pretzel. This is a newer flavor because this one's only come out in, I think, the last couple of years-ish. And so the pretzel M&M is pretty tasty. I didn't think that I would like it, but I tasted it, and it's still nowhere near my favorite. That's why it's only at number eight. But pretzel M&M, pretty good. I like the combination of, of salty and chocolate, and it's not. it doesn't do that quite as well as like a Take 5 bar, something that has a little bit more than just chocolate and pretzel, and I think that there's too much pretzel for the amount of chocolate that you're getting, which is the reason that it's not higher, but still enjoyable. Like, if you hand me a pack of pretzel M&Ms, I'm definitely not going to be upset with you by any stretch of the imagination. Number 7. Number seven on this list is the Crispy M&M. Now, this one, I don't even know if they still have them anymore. I know that they had them for a while, and then they went away. Maybe they've brought them back since it's become sort of in vogue to have all these different flavors now, and I'm not exactly sure why there's sort of a new M&M flavor renaissance going on in the past couple of years. But the Crispy M&M, if you remember, it was when they originally rolled out the orange M&M character on the, the commercials, and used to, the orange M&M was the Crispy M&M. But really, really good. I really like it. It has a little, like, rice from the Rice Krispie. Like, if you were to pour out a bowl of Rice Krispies and pick up one individual grain, that's what it has in the middle of it. It's pretty tasty. It was a good idea, and it holds up. It's kind of like if a Crunch Bar somehow had a kid with an M&M, you would get a crispy M&M. So that one, definitely worth your time. Number six. Number six is another unusual one that I would have never thought of, but once I saw it, I was like, oh my gosh, I can't believe I never thought of having that in M&M form. It's Hazel Spread. So it's basically Nutella. Now, obviously, they can't use Nutella because that's a brand name, but it tastes pretty much exactly like Nutella. And having that in combination with the M&M itself, it's a pretty good flavor combo. And so props to M&Ms on that one. Number five. Number five is another classic and one that definitely deserves to be on this list. Some of you might be upset that it's not higher. A few years ago, it probably would have been higher, but there's been several new flavors that I've discovered. But the peanut M&M, it's one that's kind of a staple. If you buy like a variety bag of M&Ms, which I did actually for Halloween, if you buy a, a variety bag of like little fun size M&Ms, you're always going to have the peanut mixed in there. It's like the original and peanut are always in the mix somehow. And that's not a bad thing because the peanut M&Ms are pretty tasty. They're basically just a, a single peanut covered in milk chocolate and a chocolate shell. What's not to love about it? The peanut M&M, definitely. It's a staple for a reason. It's really good. Number four. Number four is a little bit more unusual and I think a little more specialized to me. But I really love the almond M&M. It's just a whole almond with an M&M wrapped around it. And they're a little bit bigger. Because of that, you get a little bit more chocolate. But chocolate-covered almonds are great, don't get me wrong. But having that crispy shell just adds something to it. And that's why the Almond M&M definitely deserves to be on my list. So the Almond M&M, definitely a win. Number three. For number three, we have one that is a, our first holiday flavor on the list. But the holiday flavor is not Halloween, even though I'm doing this on Halloween. It's holiday mint. So obviously it's meant to be an ode to Christmas because you've got, for, for whatever reason, peppermint is just a flavor that got associated with Christmas. I'm really not sure why, 
believe me, I'm not complaining. I love peppermint. Just not really sure why that is, but the holiday mint, it's pretty tasty. It's basically a regular M&M, and I think it's even the same size as a regular M&M, but in the chocolate, they mix a little bit of peppermint, and it's pretty good, and they usually give them an unusual color, so it'll be like red and white and green, and so you get real Christmassy. You can't get them year-round, but when you can, be sure to stock up, because this is an M&M worth trying. Number two. Number two on this list, another one of my favorites. It's similar to the last one, and because they are so similar is why they wound up next to one another on the list, the Crispy Mint. The Crispy Mint is very similar to the Holiday Mint, but it just has a little bit of crisp in it. And I'm not exactly sure what that is, but it kind of tastes a little bit like peppermint bark, I guess is the best way to describe it. It's got, a, it's got the real crunchiness to it, and I don't know, I just... It adds something to it enough to give it the edge over the holiday mint. So let's go to number one. And number one. Number one is a flavor that has become really popular in recent years and for good reason. The peanut butter M&M. Slightly bigger than your regular M&M. And as much as I like Reese's Pieces, and I do, M&M's figured out the best combination because a Reese's Pieces, as much as I love them, and they are good, it's basically just a chocolate shell around Reese's peanut butter. Nothing wrong with that. But M&M's figured out that what you need to do is have a chocolate M&M shell, then some milk chocolate, then some peanut butter. I don't know exactly how they figured out that ratio, but whatever they did, it works, and it works even better than the Reese's Pieces, which is saying something that M&M's wound up besting Reese's Pieces, even though they had been doing it before them for like, what, 30 years? And so, peanut butter M&M's, definitely the best flavor of M&M, in my opinion. So, there you have it, guys, the top 10 M&M flavors. Now, hang on, my, uh, my beard's a little off-kilter here. There we go. All right. I have never had that problem on the air before having my beard mess up. All right, so... Uh, let's actually go ahead and get into some of the news of the day. And this one I had to do something on because, I mean, it just made sense because it's it's news and politics and religion and it's an area of expertise and involves the church that I actually attend. And so when I saw this story, I was like, okay, I have got to do something about this. So here we go. AL.com actually re released an article on the candidates and the churches that they attended. Now, this is not an unfair thing to highlight. Does it have anything to do with their policy proposals? Eh, not necessarily. I mean, I guess it certainly can. And faith should influence your policy positions, in my opinion. I mean, that just makes sense to me. I'm sorry, am I having a little beard malfunction here? Uh, but, you know, not an unfair thing to highlight. Not something that I think that they should have avoided. But at the same time, uh, I do think that when it comes to Tuberville and, and Doug Jones and that Senate race, um, it's not terribly consequential, and I'm kind of surprised that AL.com decided to run with it, but um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, it's, it's interesting, and the reason that I bring it up is not really to point out any difference between Doug Jones and Tommy Tuberville. Really, the only reason I bring it up is because there are a few inaccuracies, and Tommy Tuberville happens to be a member of the Church of Christ just like me. So, to give you a, a little bit and, and set the table here, I'm a minister in the Church of Christ. 
And my dad is also a minister in the Church of Christ. And my papa is a minister in the Church of Christ. And so is my uncle. I come from a very, very long line of Church of Christ on my mother's side. And then my dad also converted and became a, a minister and, and was for the vast majority of my lifetime. I mean, I think he started when I was five or six. And so I've grown up around this. I've been in it the entirety of my life. Even before my dad became a preacher, we still attended a Church of Christ, uh, the one where my grandfather was preaching. And so this is something that I've been around my entire life. And I actually used to worship at Auburn, the same congregation that Tommy Tuberville worshipped at when he was there. In fact, we didn't overlap any because I came there after Tuberville was no longer the head coach. But I know a lot of the same people that he knows. And so this is a story that I'm actually pretty close to. And of all the people that I know, I only have heard good things about Tuberville. Just based on like him coming to church and the way he treated people and the way that he didn't make a big deal about him being the football coach, going to church there. I've, I've yet to hear any bad thing or negative thing about Tommy Tuberville in regards to his church life. That doesn't mean there's not anything there. It just means that out of all the people I've known that actually went to church and worshiped with him, I've yet to hear a bad thing, and I think that probably says something about his character. Uh, Ale.com did write this. Steed said Tuberville took pride in finding a spiritual coordinator before hiring an offensive coordinator. And I think that that does say something about his character as well that he thought that the spiritual life of his players there at Auburn was so important that he actually found a spiritual coordinator. He found a, he, he created a chaplain program and he worried about that before he even got an offensive coordinator. And so this was something that was very basic, very fundamental to Coach Tuberville and the kind of program that he wanted to run. But I do want to preface all of this by saying that you, you need to understand this if you're not Church of Christ. Churches of Christ are autonomous. We don't have any authority over one. So if one church does something that another church completely disagrees with, they can say, hey, you shouldn't do that, but that's about the extent. There is no authority, there is no hierarchy, there is no like regional bishop or organization. Every single congregation is completely on its own and makes its own decisions. It's, it's governed solely by the elders at that one specific congregation. And so, just like they did in the New Testament, sometimes there can be people from other congregations that disagree with you, that may advise you, but as far as having actual authority, there is none. All of our authority comes directly from the Scripture and directly from Jesus Christ, and from then it is derived to the individual elders at that congregation and nowhere else. There is no middleman that takes place in there. And so because of that, the churches of Christ are significantly less standardized and also significantly less uh, organized than a lot of religions people may be familiar with. And so you just kind of need to know that going in in order to understand a few of the points that I'm going to make here. So here we go. Uh, this is uh, this is Coach Tuberville, or sorry, this is the article about Co Coach Tuberville, and this is where it kind of starts out uh, from AL.com. It also features a United Methodist, talking about Jones there, against a longtime member of the Church of Christ, a conservative denomination that doesn't launch many prominent politicians. Okay, so first of all, it's not a denomination. No Church of Christ person that I'm aware of considers ourselves a denomination. We consider ourselves the one true church. And frankly, I don't understand anybody 
that doesn't consider their church the one true church. If you're a Baptist, I don't understand why you're a Baptist if you don't consider your church the one true church. But I won't get off into a theological discussion about that, just saying that because of that, nobody in the Church of Christ considers themselves a denomination. Uh, we think of ourselves as going back to the original church. Anyway, um, it, it says that they're a conservative denomination that doesn't launch many prominent politicians. This I'm kind of torn on, because AL.com is just reporting the truth. We don't launch many prominent politicians. There are very few big politicians or celebrities at all that you can name that are members of the Church of Christ. I mean, probably the most famous members of the Church of Christ are the Duck Dynasty guys and Weird Al. So, you know, not a ton of celebrities. Not a ton of them that are members of the Church of Christ. But that being said, I mean, you can absolutely look at this in, a, in both a positive and a negative light, in my opinion. Because from my perspective, I'm almost kind of glad that there's not a lot of people of the Church of Christ involved in politics because politicians tend to be corrupt. And when you're a politician or involved in politics, by the way, like I am, don't get me wrong, uh, you tend to be very concerned about worldly things, which does run the risk, doesn't necessarily mean this is the way that it is, but does run the risk of being less spiritually minded. There are a lot of godly men that were very involved in politics. King David, who we're going to study about because we've been going through a series in 1 Samuel, is a great example of that. Uh, one of the elders at my congregation is actually a former member of the House here in the state of Alabama. So I certainly don't think it's wrong for people to be involved in politics. I would not be involved in politics sitting here doing this right now if I believe that to be the case. I'm just saying that I almost kind of like the fact that there are not more Church of Christ members in politics because of that. And then there's also a small part of me that, I don't know, kind of almost wishes that more people in the church did get involved in politics. And I say this as somebody who, it's not the only reason, but a big part of the reason that I decided to get involved in politics in the first place was because there were so few members of the church, so few dedicated Christians involved in politics. And so, I don't know, I'm just kind of torn on this one. But nonetheless, this is an accurate statement by AL.com that there's not that many that are involved in politics from the churches of Christ. But uh, it continues on here, and it, 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 I'm going to skip most of it just because a whole lot of it is just back and forth, and, and there's nothing wrong or right. There's nothing to do commentary on. It's just an accurate article for the most, most part. So I'm going to skip down to the parts that they get wrong. So... Tom Steed, this is the minister of the Church of Christ. I've attended the Church of Christ while Tom Steed was the, the preacher there. I've sat through several sermons by him, and so I know Brother Steed. I've sat down and had lunch with him a couple of times before. And so uh, this is somebody that I'm familiar with, but he was the minister, not, not, not there anymore, but at the Church of Christ there in Auburn when Tommy Tuberville was the coach and when he was attending there. And this is a quote they got from him. Quote, we were considered the liberal church of Christ, which is funny, Steed said. We didn't have women preachers. We didn't have women lead prayer. Churches of Christ are famous for their views on exclusivity of heaven. We were more likely to say you could go to heaven and be a Baptist than other churches of Christ, Steed said. We were the kinder, gentler church of Christ. Okay. Uh, I don't want to speak badly about Brother Tom. But this was a dumb statement to make, especially to a member of the media. And 
again, I'm not saying this because I think he's dumb. I just think this was a an unsmart thing to say to people that are not more familiar with the Church of Christ. I don't know if he was trying to ingratiate himself to the reporter or what context this quote came from, but this is not a smart thing to say because it lacks a lot of context, and anybody that's reading this without that context or without that understanding of the church, they don't know what you're talking about there. So it became a Church of Christ stereotype that Church of Christ people believe that only members of the church of Christ that actually attend worship in a building with the words Church of Christ on the wall somewhere, that those are the only people that can go to heaven, which is patently absurd. I have not met many people that actually do believe that. First of all, because the name the, the names on the building Churches of Christ didn't come till much later. And so what about people that are worshiping at a church that is doctrinally sound in places where there is no Church of Christ per se, or like, you know, they don't speak English. Like, there's a myriad of reasons why that's absurd. And as somebody that actually goes on mission trips to places where they're not English, I can tell you uh, that that is not something that is a big deal. There are a handful of people that sort of, uh, in the Church of Christ, that do believe that you have to be attending a Church of Christ to go to heaven. Here's the belief, and, and this comes directly from Scripture. You have to be a member of the church to go to heaven, period. There is no way to go to not be a member of the church and still go to heaven. This is talked about over and over again in the gospel. Jesus Christ asserts this many, many times, both in parable form. He says it directly. The apostles assert this later in their epistles. Jesus is the way. There is one way. And anybody that tries to sneak in or go through another route is not going to be able to get in. Now, does that necessarily mean that you have to go to a building that has the words Church of Christ on it? No, but you do have to be a member of the church in the spiritual sense. I'm convinced that if you were a person that was stranded on a desert island with nothing but the Bible, and you read it and did what it said, it wouldn't matter whether or not you referred to yourself as Church of Christ or you went to a building and worshipped at a place called the Church of Christ. The scripture is what's important, not the church building itself. And so this is where some of this confusion starts to set in. But this was just a dumb statement by Brother Tom Steed, and who I don't have any animosity toward. I just think that he's not the best representative for this by saying this because he sort of feeds incorrect stereotypes by not giving more context. And I guess it's possible that he said this in a larger context and the journalist just grabbed onto that one little quote and left out the rest. That's possible. So maybe I don't want to cast a stone that I can't take back. I'm just saying that that was not a smart thing to say in a vacuum. And Brother Steed's not like me. He's not a person that is constantly talking to the media. He doesn't know how some of these uh, politicians and journalists work. And so I'm willing to extend more grace to him than I would be a politician making a dumb statement like this. But still, not, not a smart thing to say. I will say this to Chet Williams, who was the, he was part of the chaplain program when Tommy Tuberville was there, uh, is considered one of the best chaplain programs in the entire country out of college football teams, and there's a good reason for that. Chet Williams was fantastic. He was really good at working with those guys. This was something that was an instrumental part of the Auburn football team while Tommy, Tommy Tuberville was the head coach there, and so that is something that should be praised. And where uh, where he was talking about that, Brother Steed was, he, you know, that deserves to be commended. 
Here's another thing too. Uh, when when they in the ne very next paragraph, this is this comes directly after what we just read. It says one. This is not a quote, by the way. One distinctive of more conservative Church of Christ is that women often wear head coverings in the Sunday services. He said. So that's not a direct quote. That's a paraphrase. But Steed did say it. Women at Church, at Auburn Church of Christ did not wear head coverings. He said. Again. This is dumb because it leaves out a ton of context. To give you an idea of how uncommon the practice of wearing head coverings is, I gave you basically my Church of Christ pedigree. My dad, my grandfather, my uncle, all members of the Church of Christ. They all went to Church of Christ schools. They all uh, preached at Church of Christ for multiple decades. And... When it comes to the, the doctrinal thing, my dad was actually, because he went through and got his master's, he was actually a Bible professor for a Church of Christ school here at Faulkner University, the one that I currently work at and went to for a year and a half when I was in my uh, late teens and early 20s because my freshman and sophomore year in college, I was at a Church of Christ school where I was a Bible major. So I'm about as steeped in Church of Christ as anybody can be. I had never even heard of head coverings until my late 20s. I am not kidding. And I'm a kid that was at the age of 13 taking college-level Bible courses at a Church of Christ school. And I didn't even know that churches did that. I really didn't. The first time I was exposed to it is when I was actually living in Auburn where a friend brought it up. I'd never seen it in person. He brought it up in a conversation to me. That's how insanely rare this practice is. It does happen. There are people that attend at a, a Church of Christ building and they do put head coverings on whenever they pray or whenever they sing or, or really do anything involved in worship. But I didn't even know about it until that point. That just gives you an indication of how incredibly rare that practice is. The problem with this article is that it makes it seem as though this is the very common thing and Brother Seed's congregation over at Auburn, because it's considered to be one of the more liberal Church of Christ, and, and they are more liberal than some other congregations I've attended, it, because it's considered to be one of the more liberal churches of Christ, they're one of the very few churches of Christ that don't do that. The exact opposite is true. Wearing head coverings in churches of Christ is incredibly rare. I've only ever worshipped with one woman that actually did it and believed that you were supposed to do it. And great lady, somebody that I really admire, and I kind of take the Romans 13 stance on, or uh, not Romans 13, Romans 12 stance on that, which is if it's something for her conscience sake, if it's something that she believes that she needs to do, I'm not going to tell her that it's wrong. I'm not going to tell her that she shouldn't do it. It's not harming anybody. But at the same time, I don't think that it's necessary. And like I said, it, it's just incredibly rare. And by the way, she took the same stance because she was the only person at the congregation that did that. And so there is room for not perfect dis or not perfect agreement on that. Um, it, it's it's not a salvation issue. It's not really a big deep doctrinal issue. And so because of that, some people believe in it and do it. Some people don't. But it's really not a deal breaker for people on either side. And like I said, it's incredibly incredibly rare. That the thing is, churches of Christ because they are completely autonomous. That confuses people. They think that because there's a practice going on at one church, then that's a practice that's probably pretty common in all churches because 
other churches that do have more structure, whether you're talking about United Methodist, Southern Baptist, Roman Catholic, they have certain sets of rules, certain commonalities. With the Church of Christ, you can be on either end of the spectrum. It's kind of like the Libertarian Party. Um, not to say that the Libertarian Party has any spiritual value, you know what I'm saying there. But in the Libertarian Party, for example, you will find some people that are staunchly in favor of abortion and really believe it, and also people that are staunchly against abortion and really believe it. And because they are in the same party and they have the same, well, they have different reasoning, but they basically have the same rationale. One side of that argument says that it's a, a liberty issue for the woman, another side of the aisle says that it's a liberty issue for the unborn child, and that's where they knock heads. And so in the Church of Christ, it can be very similar. There tends to be certain trends that are similar within the churches of Christ, but as far as you know, there being one set standard or an organizational uh, flag that you have to where you, you lose your flag or you, you lose your symbol of being associated with this group of Christians if you don't do this, this, and this, that's simply not a thing in the Church of Christ. And because of that, it really throws people when they find a practice that happens at one congregation that it's completely different in another congregation. So that problem, I hope that that cleared up some misconceptions that could have been drawn from that AL.com article. And by the way, I would just like to say this as well. I don't blame the journalist. I really don't. It seems to me, based on what was written in this article, the journalist at AL.com, he wasn't trying to paint the church in a bad light. He was just doing his job. He was going off of what Brother Steed told him. And if you didn't know anything about a congregation, you go in to interview somebody that's been a preacher in a congregation with that name for several decades, you would think that they would know a lot more about it too and that they would be giving you an accurate representation of what that church is like and what the church is like as a whole. In other words, other congregations like that. That's what you would think. And so this journalist, so far as I can tell, didn't do anything wrong. He was just given bad information. Or at the very least, given incomplete information that was misleading without further context. And so I don't blame AL.com. I don't blame the journalist. I don't think he did anything wrong. He probably felt like he had the right sources and he had done his research by interviewing this guy. So not really his fault. But I think a lot of this comes, and the reason that this article exists Take out the Church of Christ part of it, you could look at it from the Doug Jones perspective with the United Methodists. The reason that articles like this exist is because as a general rule, people like to categorize things. They like to put you in this box or that box or that box because getting to know each individual on an individual basis and remembering and keeping up with all those rules, that's really, really hard. And so our brain tries to shortcut things, and it's not necessarily a bad feature. It, it does save us a lot of time. But because of that, we tend to characterize certain things. And we start to think that because this is a commonality, we notice a pattern or a trend in one group, we start associating it with everything within that group. By the way, this can yield very good results. It can save a lot of time. For example, when a police officer, for example, uh, he starts noticing that people that engage in this particular behavior tend to also be suspicious, and the reason that they are suspicious is because they tend to be the people that were engaged in crime. That doesn't mean that that's true every single time across the board, but he could potentially save somebody's life because he knows that, right? Well, it can also manifest itself in a really, really bad way. In fact, that's what most racism is. 
It's a stereotype that was believed by a handful of people, and it got promulgated, and there probably even was some truth to it. But because of that, people started associating that bad trait with everybody that has that same skin color, which is ridiculous. But you can see how that is really neither a positive or a negative, but it can manifest itself in very positive or very, very negative ways. And so because of that, we have to be cautious about that. And I try to extend that same courtesy to other people in other religions or denominations that I try not to just cast everybody exactly the same and paint with a super broad brush. But that's hard to do because you really are genuine, tr genuinely trying to understand. And sometimes through trying to understand and trying to get to know them, you make some assumptions that you probably shouldn't. And really the only antidote to that is more time, more study, more reflection, and getting to know people on a more personal level. The more information will help clear up some of those misconceptions. And, and that really is why, though, because people do want to categorize things that these things do kind of crop up. It's a, it's a time-saving tool for your brain. Uh, and that works with most denominations better than it does the Church of Christ. Again, this could happen to any religious group, but that's especially true of the Church of Christ because our congregations are autonomous and we have no standards. Our only doctrine is the Bible. The only creed that we have is, is the one found in the Scripture itself. Uh, everything comes directly from that. And so because of that, there's just not a whole lot of standards that you can look to, and you wind up with something that can be very, very different from one, uh, from one congregation to the next. That this is just a good general rule moving forward. Newspapers are a very bad place to learn about theology. I mean, that's just a general rule that you can kind of, talking about painting with a broad brush, you can kind of paint with a broad brush on that one. You can pretty much guarantee that if you learned about something theologically from a news source like that, it's probably not the best information. And I don't mean that, again, to disparage AL.com. As far as I can tell, they did their job here. I'm just giving you a heads up that if you really want to learn something about a theology or a church or a doctrine, maybe an article that takes you five minutes to read is not the best place to do that. So just keep that in mind moving forward. All right, we got a lot to go to, and since it is Halloween, in honor of Halloween, the next thing we are going to be doing is the top 10 scariest things about Joe Biden. So we're going to take a quick break, and we'll be back with that segment in just a second on Tactics. Hey guys, here to tell you about one of our fantastic sponsors, insomniacookies.com. That's insomniacookies and insomniacookies.com. They also have physical locations, so if you happen to be in Birmingham or Mobile or Tuscaloosa or Auburn, you can just go to their store and pick up one of their cookies fresh baked. If you happen to be like me, that they don't have one in Montgomery, they really need to bring one to Montgomery, but they haven't brought one to Montgomery yet, and so because of that, you have to order them from insomniacookies.com. You do that, I tell you what, you're going to get one of these fantastic boxes, like one of the ones that they sent me from insomniacookies.com. And they send them in these great little wrappers, and you can just throw them in the microwave for about 10-15 seconds, and then eat it straight out of the wrapper. And the ones that I've tried this with, it really does taste like a cookie fresh out of the oven. I don't know if it's just the way that they bake them or the ingredients or what, but it comes out. And I'm going to do something that's a, a really big challenge for me today because the thing is, I like pretty much all cookies, and I'm not going to turn any of them down. But if you were to ask me what my favorite cookie flavor is 
Snickerdoodle, not one of my favorites. And so we're going to try the Snickerdoodle from InsomniaCookies.com and see if it measures up, because if Insomnia Cookies can impress me with their Snickerdoodle, then uh, that's going to be a testament to how good they are at this, because I'm, I'm just not a huge Snickerdoodle fan, but we'll see how it goes. Okay. You can tell the way they made the Snickerdoodle, it's not like they made a regular sugar cookie and then sprinkled cinnamon sugar on top. There's there's obviously cinnamon sugar in the the cookie dough itself because you can really taste it all the way throughout. That's a pretty good cookie. Now, just like other cookies, Snooker Doodle's not my favorite. But believe me, I'm not... I'm in no way not enjoying this cookie. This is a good cookie. Not my favorite flavor, but this is probably the best snickerdoodle I've ever had. And I've had some from lots of different companies. I Look, guys, I, I just eat a lot of cookies. <laughs> Let's just be honest about that. Uh, even though it's not one of the ones that I usually pick, I've had lots of different kinds of snickerdoodles. Uh, I've had store-bought ones. I've had ones that you get in, like, bakeries and whatnot. Uh, I've tried some of even the local bakeries around here. This is probably the best snickerdoodle I've ever had. It's a little bit buttery. Like you, you can taste the butter in it. It's almost like... It's very similar to with the, the texture and the flavor, and especially if you heat it up and, and eat it hot. It very much reminds me of what a cinnamon bun tastes like if there's no icing on top. So if, if you take the icing off of a cinnamon bun, you're going to get something very, very similar to this snickerdoodle cookie. And one thing that I like about it is most snickerdoodles, they actually kind of overdo the cinnamon, like that they have it to where if you were to take the cookie up and then turn it over like this to, to where it's on its side, you would just see like a, a rain <laughs> of cinnamon sugar falling off of it. This one's not like that. They definitely have extra cinnamon sugar that they put on top after they baked it because it's, it's in the cookie, but then it's also on the outside of the cookie. I think that they definitely added some afterward after they baked it, uh, but it's in both, and they don't like completely overdo it to where you feel like you, you need to take a shower because of all the cinnamon sugar you got on yourself with most snickerdoodles. Uh, but it, they, they don't sacrifice the flavor for that either. Like It's still got a very, very strong cinnamon sugar flavor, and uh, I think that's a testament to how well they did on this one. Again, not one of my favorite flavors. Uh, we're talking about peanut butter cup. We're talking about chocolate chip cookie. Oh, I'll, I'll run over somebody to get one of those. Uh, but this is not one of my favorite flavors, and this is still probably the best version of a snickerdoodle cookie that I've ever had. So be sure to check them out, insomniacookies.com, if you want to order cookies just like this. And welcome back, everybody. Uh, I had a request from the comment section to do my best Ian McKellen. Well, I actually started the show out with that, but maybe you missed that. So I guess I'll go ahead and do that now. Um, a wizard is never late, Frodo Baggins. Nor is he early. He arrives precisely when he means to. So that's my best Ian McKellen. I could do another one that is a little bit louder, but I'd have to seriously blow out my mic to do it, and I'm just not going to blow out a $180 mic to <laughs> to prove a point. So let's go ahead and go to 
the top 10. As I promised, we're in honor of Halloween going to be doing the top 10 scariest things about Joe Biden. So here it goes. The Tactics Top 10. All right, so the top 10 scariest things about Joe Biden, it has to be about Joe Biden himself, but that's pretty much the only rule. So it does have to be either something that he supported or something that he's done. And as long as we can include those things, the top 10, it can be a part of the top 10. So it's not like a general thing about Democrats. It has to specifically be about Joe Biden. That being said, those are the rules. Let's go ahead and get started with number 10. Number 10. Number 10 on this list is that Joe Biden wants your kids away from you as much as possible. And you don't have to take my word for it. Just look at his campaign website. One of the things he advocates for is a nationwide pre-K for three and four-year-olds. And it seems as though, because he would be the president, not a governor, that that would be a mandate that he would be making at the federal level. Now, maybe because he's very inspecific about it, he's talking about the states running those things and it just being mandated that they have to provide it from the federal level. I don't know, maybe that's the case. But an even scarier proposition, since it would be coming down from the federal level, is that it would be federally run, and that ought to scare the pants off of everybody. You know, this has been a common trope of the Democrats for a very, very, very long time. Remember that one of their patron saints, Woodrow Wilson, the most progressive president in American history, I hate that guy, uh, Woodrow Wilson actually said when he was the principal, or not the principal, the What's the word I'm looking for? The president of Princeton University. He said that he felt it was his job as an educator to make men as unlike their fathers as humanly possible. He was a guy that believed in the breakdown of the nuclear family, and this has been a staple of Democrat policies for a long, long, long time. Black Lives Matter, for example. Again, this isn't about Joe Biden, but they have even called for the breakdown of the nuclear family, and I think that it's no coincidence that it just happens to coincide with Joe Biden saying, you know what, we need to for kids to be in the loving arms of the government from the time that they're three years old all the way until they're 18 and an adult. So basically, the government having even more influence over how your kids think, how your kids learn, how they feel, so that they can have even more influence over them for a longer period of time. And his vice presidential candidate, she's part of the campaign too, while she was a senator, she actually sponsored a bill for a 10-hour school day. A federally mandated 10-hour school day. So apparently she felt that having the kids for 6 to 7 hours a day, that that just wasn't quite enough. She wants to have your kids for 10 hours to provide all three meals for them. Basically, they want you to just turn over your kids to the government and then they turn them back over to you when they're 18 and can vote again and they've already indoctrinated them into socialism. That seems to be the sinister underlying desire there. And it really is terrifying, which is why it's on our top 10. Number nine. Number nine is more generic, but nonetheless scary. Joe Biden would be in charge of foreign policy. Remember that one of Joe Biden's top advisors when he was the vice president, even he an ally of Joe Biden said that Joe Biden has gotten virtually every single foreign policy issue wrong his entire career. Remember that it was Joe Biden 
that opposed the killing of Osama bin Laden. In his own words, he said to Barack Obama that there's a couple things we need to do first. Don't go ahead and, and kill Osama bin Laden just yet. He's always gotten everything in the field of foreign relations and foreign policy completely wrong. He has come out in opposition to killing Soleimani. You remember the Soleimani strike that was conducted by President Trump? He was vehemently against that. He also and this should come as no surprise considering what we've learned about him, what we've learned about his son, about how his son was literally selling military secrets and military technology to a company that was investigated by the FBI for stealing military-sensitive secrets. And Joe Biden's son was getting millions and millions of dollars, not from a company in China, but from the actual Bank of China, an entity that is an offshoot, is actually a government agency, just like the FBI would be for us. He got that money from the Bank of China and had access to Chinese markets when even large American corporations like Wells Fargo had been trying for years to get them. And he, with zero experience, just walked in and got a deal with the Bank of China and was able to open up that marketplace. Seems odd that that took place, especially considering his dad basically let China run wild in the South China Seas, and he was the point man for the Obama administration on China. But that's a whole other episode that we could go way in depth on. But suffice it to say, just that alone should give us pause when it comes to foreign policy. He also said that he welcomed the rise of China, and like I said, let them run wild in the South China Seas, said that they're, come on, China's a political rival? Come on, man. The guy is not going to be tough on China. He's not going to be tough on Russia. He never has been in the past, and he always gets foreign policy wrong. Remember that same deal I was talking about with the Chinese government? Yeah, guess who approved that? The State Department, which was run by Barack Obama at the time. The same way that they did the Uranium One thing with Hillary Clinton, even though this was clearly military-sensitive technology. The anti-vibration technology that's used in fighter jets is, is one of the specific ones. Even though it clearly was dual-use and had military application, nobody else would have been given that deal. But because the guy who was requesting it had the last name Biden, it was mysteriously approved by the State Department. So there's all kinds of things that are troubling there. The more that we learn about his corruption in China and Ukraine and other places, the more it should scare us that this guy could be in charge of American foreign policy and have an even bigger role than he did before. Number eight. Number eight. This one, again, is slightly generic, but Joe Biden would be raising taxes. Now, I've already done several videos on just this alone. You can look at, for example, the top five Kamala Harris lies, which is about a week old now. You can go back and check that out on my page if you want more details, more hard numbers on this. But suffice it to say that Joe Biden would be increasing your taxes. Several independent firms have confirmed this. Uh, you would, at the very least, the average American family would see a decrease in their take-home after-tax money by at least 1.7%. Not a huge percentage, but let's say you're somebody that's only making, you know, $60,000 a year. Well, missing out on that money, missing out on, that would be about 1200 bucks a year, that's a big deal. I mean, that that's a new car payment or that that's a lot. And so this is going to really hurt the average American family. He can say all he wants to 
and I'm not going to raise taxes on anybody over that's making under $400,000, which by the way is kind of funny because the president's salary is right at $400,000. And so it's funny, like the guy who makes one penny more than I do, that's who I'm going to raise taxes on. Uh, yeah, that's not suspicious at all. But nonetheless, just ignoring that for a second, the average American is going to be paying more in taxes. And by the way, that would uh, coincide with a radical increase in spending. Right now, the way the government is working right now, and by the way, this is 100% on President Trump and the Senate and House Republicans' heads as well. I'm not saying that this is an exclusively Democrat problem. Right now, we are running a $2 trillion deficit. Based on the numbers, Joe Biden would be running a $3.045 trillion deficit, which is an increase in, uh, by 52%. That is a dramatic increase over what we would be spending now. And even with the new taxes, he would be falling far short of that. That's after you account for the new tax revenue that he's proposing. So even after you add the new taxes, deficit, deficit spending still goes up by 52%. And when that happens, guess what they're going to do? They're going to say, they're going to do one of two things. Either they're going to borrow more money, so you're just borrowing money from the taxpayers in the future because they'll have to pay back that debt eventually. Or, and by the way, we would be on China's dole even further than we already are, which might even be Joe Biden's plan, I don't know. Or he would have to increase taxes more to make up for that deficit. One of those two things has to happen because all the policy proposals that he's putting out there, it is impossible to pay for them with the current budget. Number seven. Number seven just coincides with what we were saying a second ago. These two go hand in hand in increase in spending. So as I already said, in the best case scenario, Joe Biden's policy proposals, even if you include the new revenue coming into the IRS from spending, would result in a 52% increase in deficit spending. And what is also terrifying about that is that is a number that completely ignores all the macroeconomic effects. So that's assuming that with new taxes, with higher taxes, specifically ones that Joe Biden has promised to uh, target rich people even more so and increase the corporate well, uh, the corporate tax uh, to one of the highest in the entire world, that if all of that stuff goes through, that assumes that not one company is going to pull up roots and relocate somewhere else. And I don't even mean necessarily on the corporate level, although that could happen too with companies like Burger King, which did that. I'm just talking about them moving literally one factory. That would mean they would not move one single factory. They would not lay off a single worker because of the increased labor costs that he's proposing. Uh, that would be them not increasing the price of any of their products, any of that. Even if you ignore all of those effects that will necessarily happen, he's still running a 52% deficit. So what happens when the real numbers come in Then he's actually running a much larger deficit than that? He's going to go to his buddies at the Bank of China and beg for another loan, or he's going to increase your taxes to do it. And so, yes, like I said, these two just kind of run hand in hand, but both of them are pretty terrifying. Number six. Number six, again, this is one we could do an entire video on just this one, but it's the Green New Deal. So Joe Biden has said, and it's on his campaign website as of this taping, 
that the Green New Deal is a crucial framework. And all of the stuff that he lists, the USA Today fact checker actually looked into it. USA Today is not exactly a conservative website or newspaper. And they said that it's basically the same as the regular Green New Deal that was sponsored by Joe Biden's current vice president, Kamala Harris. And so that's pretty terrifying that it would be the Green New Deal, especially considering that the original one, uh, not the one that was in the bill that Kamala Harris co-sponsored, she was the first Senate co-sponsor for that bill. But it's pretty terrifying to think about that because the one that AOC proposed would cost anywhere from, uh, I think the most recent estimates I saw were anywhere from 50 to $90 trillion. Keep in mind that all the printed money in the world only equals up to about $90 trillion. So <laughs> the idea, 90 to 95, some people say as low as 70, it depends on what you count as printed money, if you count digital in it as well. But nonetheless, basically it's all the money in the world over the span of 10 years for one country. That's absolutely insane. It's not feasible at all. And yet, this is what they're talking about. They're talking about gutting every building in America. They're talking about all these plans to stop cows from flatulating and burping. None of this makes sense. And yet, they're all touting it, and Joe Biden is putting it on there. And it's what's really funny is in the debate, he says he doesn't support it, even though it's on his campaign's website. And when asked about it, he says, well, it'll pay for itself. Do you support it? No. Well, if it's going to pay for itself, why wouldn't you support it? If it's going to be budget neutral, if you actually believe that, Joe Biden, why wouldn't you support it? The thing is, he really does support it. He just doesn't want to be on the hook for it, which, again, is odd that it's still on their website if that is the case. And remember that even if he didn't have it on his campaign's website, that in the last debate with President Donald Trump, he said that he plans to destroy the energy industry, destroy the oil industry and replace it with wind and solar, which currently accounts for roughly two-ish, two-and-a-half percent of all energy in the United States. That somehow, in the span of 15 years, we will have zero carbon emissions, there will be no cars that run on gasoline, that in the span of 15 years, we're going to completely turn the entire economy over to wind and solar. and That's absolutely insane. It could never work. The only way that we might be able to get somewhere in the ballpark of that is if we drastically increased fracking, which Joe Biden has vowed to ban before he said that he would allow it. And then he said that he'd allow it, but he'd ban it on federal lands, which is basically just banning it. I mean, yes, you could mine on private land, but the vast majority of fracking that is done on federal property, especially out west where most of the natural gas is. So there's a myriad of reasons to think that he does intend to follow through on his promise to destroy the fossil fuel industry when he was saying that in his debate against President Trump. Number five. Number five is one that he has refused to answer. They've asked him if he's going to destroy the filibuster in the Senate. Now, the thing that does give a little bit of comfort is that the president can't actually do that. He does need the Senate to do that themselves. But he's also not said that he would be against it or not try to stop it. Every time that they ask him about it, he refuses to answer the question. Which leads me to believe that at the very least, he would not be a bulwark he would not be stopping the filibuster from going away. 
And that could be pretty scary as well, considering it would completely change the makeup and the function, or at least how it functions, of one of our, at least half of one of our branches of government. Number four. Number four is that Joe Biden himself is just a Trojan horse. This is what Joe Biden has been his entire political career. He's never been the leader of the party. It was really rich hearing him say that I am the Democrat Party in one of the recent debates. The guy is not the Democrat Party. He never has been. He's always been a follower, not a leader. He has always been somebody that is riding the coattails of whoever else is there. That's the reason that, for example, he was good friends with a former recruiter for the Klan. Because back when that's what the Democrat Party was, he said that things like, you know, uh, he said that that's good for, uh, that's, that's good for, I can't even say it. That's the thing. I'm, I'm sorry, I'm not losing my words or forgetting what he's saying. It's just, I literally can't repeat what he was saying. He used a disparaging comment for black people. Uh, one of the N-words, not the worst one, the, the less bad one uh, that I'm very hesitant to say on the air. Uh, that Joe Biden said that that's just good for them, and, and he was talking about Democrat policies there, uh, that he eulogized Robert Byrd and talked about what a fantastic human being he was, even though he is a former Klan recruiter. And so you, you've got all of that going on. That's just proof that this guy is not somebody that steps out in front. He's not somebody that is a leader. He is a follower. And that's even more scary when you think of, okay, well, if he's not that and he can be easily influenced, who are the people surrounding him? Mostly wild, radical leftists, including his vice president, Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris was named the most liberal senator in the country. Now, might I remind you who else is in the Senate? People like Cory Booker, Elizabeth Warren and self-described socialist Bernie Sanders. She's to the left of them, according to a lot of these independent ranking sites that rank how far left or how far right somebody is. When she was running for president, she was the only person whose budget was larger than Bernie Sanders. And Joe Biden, let's face it, is not a spring chicken. I don't want anything bad to happen to the man. I really don't. I really don't want anything terrible to happen to this guy. And I don't want to say ghoulish things about him. But he is older than the average life expectancy for a man in the United States. And yeah, any president can drop dead any time. JFK was one of our youngest, youngest presidents and got assassinated. I get that. I understand that that's always a risk. But let's be honest, it's much, much more likely with Joe Biden than it is most other president, people that have been president. I'm not just talking about Donald Trump. I'm talking about through the years. He, is the, he would be the oldest person to ever be inaugurated. The man is living on borrowed time. Even if he lives for another decade or so, which, frankly, I, I hope he does. I, I wish him the best, but I kind of doubt that. Like I said, he's already over the age that most men in America die. And so him being a Trojan horse and, and just being somebody that has never really stuck to his guns on that stuff, that's even more concerning when you consider that he may not be around longer. And here's another thing. Nancy Pelosi, 
I don't know if you saw this news story. She actually proposed an amendment to allow the House to basically declare a president unfit for office and install the vice president. A lot of people, a lot of people speculate that that is being done because what they're trying to do is get rid of Trump. That is simply not the case. I mean, would it be nice for them to be able to just unilaterally say as a body to get rid of Trump? Yeah, it probably would be. But I don't think that's why they're doing it. They think, and there's good reason to believe this, that Joe Biden is going to be the next president of the United States. I think they're actually doing it because of him. I think what they're actually doing here is they want to get Joe Biden in. And then after a little while, they declare him mentally incompetent. And then they shoehorn in Kamala Harris, the most liberal senator in the United States Senate, further to the left than a self-described socialist. Number three. Number three is one that has not really been at the forefront of this campaign. And it's kind of a shame that it's not because it's something that Joe Biden is wildly radical on and has been his entire career. They just haven't spoken about it very much. He hasn't been asked a lot of questions about it. It hasn't come up in any of the debates, but it's gun control. I mean, Joe Biden is radically on the left when it comes to gun control and always has been. This has been something that's been a staple of his his entire career, despite knowing nothing about it, saying that, uh, you know, you need to go and, and fire a shotgun through the door if you think somebody's outside, which is incredibly stupid and dangerous for a number of reasons. Uh, but anyway, Joe Biden is really, really radical on gun control. If you look at his official policy proposals on his website, he is for ending the sale of all guns and gun accessories online. Now, for those of you who don't know what an online purchase is like for a firearm, you go to the website, you order the firearm, it ships to a firearms dealer, somebody that has a federal license to handle firearms. You go up to the counter, you tell them that you've got an order there, you give them your name, they do a background check on you, just like it would if you walked in and bought a gun from them directly from their store, and then they distribute it to you. Now, usually they charge a small fee for that for handling. But the point is, they... What gets conjured up in a liberal's head when you say that you bought a gun online is they think that it, it works just like Amazon. That any random person can go on Amazon, click whatever they want, and then it just shows up at your door a couple days later. That's not how it works with guns. That is highly, highly illegal. And so it, it's just as safe. In fact, every gun I've ever bought, I bought online. It's just as safe as walking into a gun dealer shop and going through a background check. It's the same background check that you go through for that. He's saying that you can't even buy not only guns themselves through that same process, but gun accessories. So in other words, I couldn't even go on Amazon and buy a scope for my rifle or a replacement for the stock of my rifle or an extra magazine for my handgun or a holster. You, you couldn't buy anything even tangentially related to guns online, which is absurd. He's also for ending the private sale of all firearms. In other words, you would have to go through a license. If you give your gun off to somebody else, uh, if you're 
a dad giving his gun, passing it down to his son, you would actually have to go through a federal registry and transfer that gun legally. Which, by the way, completely defeats the purpose of the Second Amendment, but I just did a segment on this when I was talking about Doug Jones. So if you're interested in that, watch that. And remember that Bob Francis O'Rourke, you might know him as, as Beto, Bob Francis, the whitest, most Irish Mexican that you will ever run across. Uh, no Mexican in his background, actually. Um, he actually is going to be, according to Joe Biden, his new guns are. He wants Beto O'Rourke, the guy who said, word I can't say, yes, we're going to take your guns away. We're taking your AR-15. We're going to have cops kicking in the door and taking your guns away from you. In Texas, of all things, that guy is going to be in charge of Joe Biden's gun policies. And if that doesn't scare you, nothing will. When they ask if Joe Biden is going to take away their AR-15s, he said, and I quote, bingo. That came out of Joe Biden's mouth. We're going to take your AR-15s? Bingo. That's what I'm doing. No hesitation whatsoever. Joe, this is actually one of the issues that it's a shame that it hasn't been brought more to the forefront, that Joe Biden is incredibly radical on the Second Amendment. Number two. Number two, abortion on demand. Every single time that Joe Biden has come up for a vote or had to answer a question about it, it seems as though he is against any kind of regulation whatsoever when it comes to abortion. And so you could go through the laundry list of things here. I'm going to just rapid fire these. Kamala Harris, as vice president, is the same way. She voted against the 20-week ban that was floated earlier this year in the Senate, and she was the person that prosecuted the guys at the Center for Medical Progress. You remember the guys that found the tapes and, and actually took the footage of Planned Parenthood executives selling body parts of babies? Yeah, remember that Kamala Harris was the Attorney General of California at the time? She prosecuted the journalist, not the people committing the felony. She went after them, and by the way, it was directly after she met with the very people that were on the tape in Planned Parenthood. She took her marching orders directly from Planned Parenthood to prosecute people that Planned Parenthood did not like, instead of prosecuting the actual criminals in that case the ones that were actually breaking a federal law. And so that's who Kamala Harris is, but it's not just her. So Joe Biden vowed to repeal the Hyde Amendment, even though he had reportedly supported it for years. The Hyde Amendment is the one that says that federal funding can't go to abortion. Now he's saying we need to completely get rid of that, and we need to get rid of the global gag rule, which is a rule that basically says that no money can go to a government if they're going to use that fund if they're going to use those taxpayer dollars for abortion. Now, I would rather us just not give any federal aid at all, period. But Joe Biden is saying not only should we do that, but we should give it to countries that can use it for abortion. We should get rid of any of those restrictions on that. So he wouldn't just be paying for abortions here in America. He'd be paying for abortions in other countries with taxpayer money. He also supported a federal law prohibiting restrictions on abortion. Think about that. He supported a federal law that banned restrictions on abortion. So in other words, abortion would be across state lines, federal, no restrictions on it whatsoever. 
an individual state would not be able to make its own restrictions, do things like require an ultrasound, require a consultation, require you to wait for three or four days before deciding and making your final decision. And furthermore, both Harris and Biden have stated their approval of it being part of the public option. In other words, you can go and you don't have to be a poor person. You don't have to qualify. Just anybody that wants to be on government health care can go and pay for the plan and be on government health care, the public option. And then what they can do afterward is that they can get an abortion using that money, using the government mandated health care. That's absolutely insane, but that's how radical Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are. And number one. And number one on this list, it's packing the courts. And you might say after all the things that we've looked at, especially with me, who tends to be like abortion is my number one thing, how is it that that wasn't number one? Well, here's why. Because if he does pack the court, then all of those things that I just listed on the top 10 list, there will basically be nothing to stop him from getting all of those things done. And so the reason that I named this as the number one is because if the courts are packed and they're stacked with Joe Biden supporters that are just going to rubber stamp absolutely everything that Joe Biden does and even legislate from the bench some of the things that Joe Biden can't get through the legislature, then it's done. We're over as a country. We have then delved into judicial tyranny and we just might as well not even have a president or a legislator at all. We're just run by the Supreme Court. And if he's packed the court with 15 judges and they have an overwhelming majority of liberal justices in there, then basically we just are at their mercy for whatever it is that they want to do. It's a horrible, horrible idea. And it will basically turn... It's not a monarchy because there's more than one dictator, but it's, di it's, it's basically being a dictator by a panel. So instead of having one dictator, we'll have a panel of 15 dictators that can do whatever they want. That's what packing the court would necessarily lead to, and he still to this day refuses to answer it because he knows that the answer will be unpopular, which is that he and Kamala Harris intend to pack the court. I did another special on that just recently as well. But if he does that, all the other stuff that we've listed becomes a reality, and it becomes reality very, very quickly because people will be strategically bringing lawsuits to the Supreme Court knowing that they will be able to change the law strategically through that if they know that they're going to have somebody that rubber stamps all those policies. If that happens, it doesn't even matter if we have the Senate. Now, the Senate can prevent him from packing the court. But even if we had a Republican Senate and we had a packed court at that point, even the Senate couldn't do anything to stop him. Or the House. They would just be able to do whatever... Uh, it, they would. We would just basically be at the mercy of however many justices that we have at that point. So with all this being said, I actually wanted to pivot a little bit. That, that concludes the top 10. But I had somebody asking me from a Christian perspective, what would be my advice to Christians that are considering Biden because he's less scary than Trump or he seems to be a more moral person with Trump? Well, first of all, I would say, I don't know that he's more moral, but that's a discussion for another time. Basically, the motivation here is that Trump is morally bad, which 
is not an unfair characterization. And so because of that, how would you speak to a Christian that wants to go with Biden or is at least considering voting for Biden because he's less scary than Trump, that he seems like he wouldn't be doing the crazy tweets and all the other insane things that Trump does? Well, here's how I would say that. And this kind of goes back to the thing I was saying earlier about him being a Trojan horse. Was Ahab a bad king? Seriously, I'm asking that question. If you're not familiar with that story, Ahab, who was the husband of Jezebel. Do we remember Ahab's name? Some people do. Most don't. Most only remember Jezebel's name. Because the truth is, she was the one running things. She was the one making most of those decisions. And ultimately, Jezebel was the one that led Ahab to do a lot of the horrible things that he did. Now, Ahab was a pretty terrible guy on his own right. Don't get me wrong. And frankly, I think Joe Biden's a pretty terrible guy in in his own right, and and I question how a Christian could even consider voting for anybody that is in favor of murdering a child in the womb. I'm not saying you got to vote for Trump. I'm not. I I could see a Christian saying there are too many moral scruples that I have with him, and because of that, I just can't pull the lever for him. Okay, I understand that. I think I could, you know, maybe make a case, and I think there's more discussion. I think it's more nuanced than that. And I'm fine with having that discussion with anybody. What I'm saying to you, though, is that being scared or not liking a moral evil on one side does not justify going for a moral evil on the other. That's never a good thing. In fact, that happened several times in the Bible, and it it always winds up ending very poorly. But I want you to consider Ahab. Yes, Ahab was a very bad king. But Ahab's real problem is that he was weak. The truth is, he wasn't really the king. Jezebel was the one calling the shots, and he refused to stop it. If Joe Biden becomes president, yes, Joe Biden scares me, and I just laid out 10 really good reasons why. But what scares me more than that is he has surrounded himself with people that are serious about this. They're ideologues. They're radicals. They are going to push forward, and that's the way that they've been their entire careers. Joe Biden is not that. He's not an ideologue. He likes being in power. He's, he's your run-of-the-mill Democrat. But he is also not a strong person. When you combine the fact that he's not that strong, that he's not going to be somebody that stands up to the people and say, no, this is wrong, he's going to become King Ahab. That may himself have not been the worst person, probably not the best, but not the worst. Maybe his name won't live in infamy forever but the fact that he wasn't the guy that stopped it. That's going to be the big point of contention with me. The same thing with King Ahab and and not stopping the evil actions of people like Jezebel and other advisors that were surrounding him. But just remember that moral incorrectness on one side does not mean that the other side must be morally correct. Two evil forces can be opposing one another. In fact, that's a pretty common theme in the Scripture that there are two evil forces fighting against one another, and the only correct option is to choose neither. I'm not saying that you have to choose neither. I'm not saying you have to choose Trump. I'm saying that these are things that you need to consider because if you're thinking, oh, well, Trump's really bad and I have some problems with him, therefore I should vote for Joe Biden, I'm sorry, your logic is flawed. You're You're way off into scriptural error at that point. Now, maybe you could arrive at a different conclusion 
some other way and logically get there, but you've got faulty logic on that when you're doing the math wrong. And just like in math, how you get to the answer, how you do the work, sometimes that matters even more than the actual answer that you come up with. But to any Christian that ever has any question about any election, my advice to them would always be to pray and to read. Pray to God that he will give you wisdom and understanding and knowledge and that you will do the right thing and also read. Read the scripture, look to its wisdom, and try to find something in there that you can help understand the situation that you are in. Because remember that Matthew 12, 26, Jesus tells us that we are going to have to answer for every idle word, every single one. Not even just the good or bad things that we say. We have to give a explanation, a rationale for even the idle words that we say. Everything we do in this life is being recorded and we have to answer for it one day. And so with something as important as the freedom of mankind, you better be able to give a really good answer for why you chose what you did. And that's one of the reasons that I do take voting so incredibly seriously and the reason that we're going to be doing Ballot Palooza on Monday right here on Tactics to uh, help you out with your election and, and all the things that you need to get ready for that. So that being said, we're going to go ahead and take a quick break here and we'll be back in just a minute with the Daily Dose of Stupid on Tactics. This is a News Radio 1440 podcast. And welcome back to Tactics, everybody, live from Middle Earth. Thank you so much for being with us this evening. Be sure to like and subscribe if you are so inclined. And uh, leave us a five-star review if you happen to be listening to us on the podcast. Embellish for us, if you wouldn't mind. We appreciate it. We really do. Thank you so much for being with us this evening. Let's go ahead and go to our daily dose of stupid. Now you messed it up. (laughs) You're stupid. And for today's daily dose of stupid, and it is a zinger, and I have thoroughly enjoyed it. We're going to do sort of a collaboration of several of them, but they're all related to Amy Coney Barrett. That's right. ACB, the notorious ACB, has been confirmed to the Supreme Court. We broke that news here on Tuesday as well. But the reaction has been just as entertaining, if not more so, than the lead up to it. So we're going to go ahead and play several different people's reactions. First of all, Chuck Schumer, on how this is the darkest day. This is actually appropriate since I'm dressed like I'm in Middle Earth because he makes it sound as though uh, the Dark Lord of Mordor is rising on this one. This is Chuck Schumer, the Senate Minority Leader, talking about how this goes down as a dark day in America's history, a truly dark day. My deepest, greatest, and most abiding sadness tonight is for the American people and what this nomination will mean for their lives, their freedoms, their fundamental rights. Monday, October 26th, 2020, it will go down as one of the darkest days in the 231-year history of the United States Senate. I yield the floor. Oh, the woe and lamentation. It's one of the darkest days in American history. You know, not... Not 9-11, not Valley Forge, not Pearl Harbor or Black Tuesday, which started the Depression, 
or the day that JFK was assassinated, or the day that Abraham Lincoln was assassinated, or the day that Martin Luther King was assassinated. I don't know. I feel like there might be a few darker days in our 230-plus year history than the confirmation of an originalist that wants to defend the Constitution. I feel like that's real low on the list of dark days. I do love the, the dramatics, though, and, and you can tell I, I love drama. I mean, look at me. I'm dressed as Gandalf. But uh, I, f I feel like I should be doing that same speech as Gandalf. is like, this day will go down as a dark day, a dark day in Middle-earth. You know, it's, it's just so dramatic and so, so over the top in so many different ways. It's, it's so ridiculous, but it is amusing, if nothing else. I mean, the thing that is great about ACB is I almost feel like only President Trump could have brought us somebody like her because the guy is the king troll. He is the troll-in-chief, and he does love to own the libs. And uh, I kind of feel like she is the ultimate own-the-libs move, and that may be why he picked her, which I honestly kind of enjoy. Uh, but there is quite a bit of wailing and gnashing of teeth. Now, for further context, it, it may be helpful to note here that this is not the first time this language has been used by Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer. He re has referred to quite a few days in American history as one of the darkest days in American history, uh, let's see, I, I believe he used that in reference to the day that Trump got elected. He used it when Kavanaugh got... Basically, every day that something bad that they don't like happens, it's the darkest day in American history. Because the Democrats are essentially a group of 13-year-old girls. And the thing about 13-year-old girls is they have no small problems. Every single problem is the biggest problem that has ever existed in the history of mankind. They have no context. They have no sense of... Other people having issues. I mean, to them, getting a zit and the Holocaust, pretty much the same thing. Th that's the issue with 13-year-old girls is that the vast majority of them, they, they think that every single little problem that they have is the biggest problem ever. And that's kind of how Democrats react to things. They just, they act as though every single little thing that comes their way, every minor inconvenience, and this was a big deal, don't get me wrong. I mean, the confirmation of a Supreme Court justice like Amy Coney Barrett, that's a pretty big blow to the Democrats. I'm not saying that it's not. But to overblow it to the point to where it's worse than like the day Martin Luther King was assassinated or uh, the day that Japan attacked Pearl Harbor, it's just insane. And so because of that, because they seem to lack all sense of normalcy and perspective, Chuck Schumer way, way overstates this. But he's not the only one. There was a great deal of woe and lamentation from other leftists at MSNBC. This is MSNBC's Chris Hayes. It was all the major players in the institutional Republican Party who were there, in the Federalist Society. Ooh. Everyone went along with it because this Supreme Court nomination is what brings them all together. This is the brutally destructive, cynical deal struck between Donald Trump and the Republican Party writ large. They let the president do whatever he wants, line his pockets by shaking down the government, shred our democratic institution, destroy the country's pandemic coping capacity, as long as he gives them judges and justices and some tax cuts for rich people and corporations. That's the corrupt bargain. It was on display in all those smiles and those hugs and those attaboys in the Rose Garden super spreader event. Yeah. It probably led to the White House outbreak. And now here we are, four weeks later, over 30,000 people have died. So 
Chris Hayes goes way off the rails here, starting to blame the spike in America on the White House spreader. That Amy Coney Barrett, you got to give her credit. She's one of the most powerful human beings that has ever existed. I mean, she's like Wonder Woman, Superman, and The Flash all rolled into one by the ways that the Democrats explain it because this one little person has single-handedly, by being confirmed to the Supreme Court, being one justice out of nine, has already completely destroyed our country, completely destroyed all of our constitutional norms, and also caused the country to have 200,000 people die, many of which died before she was ever even talked about, before Ruth Bader Ginsburg even passed away. And so you got to hand it to ACB, man. She is a juggernaut. She can do all kinds of crazy things. Or it could be that Chris Hayes is just connecting these things with absolutely no sense of logic or reason. So, first of all, I do like the fact that he brings up, and I think he's accurate in this, that this is the place where Republicans do come together. He's right on that. Because your establishment Republicans that have been there since the mid-1800s, like Mitch McConnell, he's actually pretty darn good at this. This is one of the only things Mitch McConnell is actually legitimately good for. And your establishment Republican types tend to be more or less on the same page when it comes to Supreme Court justices as your hardcore con uh, conservatives and libertarians like me. And so Chris Hayes is not incorrect in that one particular part of his commentary. This is the place that we all come together. And if there was one place for us all to come together, shouldn't it be the Constitution? If you could come up with something that ought to unite not just all Republicans, but all Americans, it's that the Constitution is pretty awesome. The Constitution is a very good thing in that we should all applaud that and want justices that will defend it as written. Because that's the whole point of written law, or the whole point of writing anything, really. I mean, obviously, law has a bigger impact, but isn't the reason that when you write anything, isn't the purpose of that to preserve what you are trying to communicate? That's the point, right? And that's what we're trying to do here. Originalism is just the belief that when you pass something, that should mean the same thing the day you passed it as 100 years from now because that's how it got passed. If you want to change the law, there's an avenue for that. You can certainly change that if it needs to be changed, and that's fine. That's part of the system, too. But that you shouldn't just reimagine laws as you would like them to be after the fact. Because, I mean, if that were the case, because time shouldn't make a difference here, um... I could make a law that says one thing and then somebody interprets it to say the exact opposite of what I intended when I wrote it. By the way, this is what Justice Roberts did with Obamacare. We know that they meant it as a fee. They talked about it as though it was a fee. That was actually a selling point with the Affordable Care Act is that it's not a tax, it is a fee. And they made this argument over and over again. So there's no vagueness here as to whether or not it was a tax or a fee. But then, if it were a fee, that would be unconstitutional. So Justice Roberts rewrote it to say, no, it's not a fee, it's a tax. Even just a few years after its passage, he completely rewrote the law to mean something that he knew good and well it did not mean that day. And so the fact that laws ought to actually mean something and not just be unilaterally reinterpreted by an unelected group of nine right after the law was passed, yeah, th that's something that should uh, unite Republicans and Americans as a whole. That is a very, very good thing. Also, it's important to note that America is not the only place seeing spikes right now. 
We're also seeing them in France, in the United Kingdom, and Italy, which all have very strict shutdowns and mask mandates going on right now. So it's really weird that Amy Coney Barrett was able to create and cause, and the meeting over her confirmation was able to somehow trigger even other countries to get coronavirus spikes. Man, she is a powerful, powerful woman, no matter how you feel about her, that she can actually make other countries sick with the virus. That's how powerful she is. But I also find one big inconsistency here. He's trying to make the case that this is very elitist. Oh, it's in the Rose Garden, and they're all smiling and congratulating one another and slapping each other on the back, and, well, we don't care about you little people getting the virus. We already have it. We've survived it. We don't need you. But then he also simultaneously makes the case that they're being reckless with the virus. Okay, the reason that an ivory tower complex works is that it's a tower. In other words, you're above it. You don't have to worry about the peasants at the bottom. Their problems are not your concern because you're in the ivory tower. You cannot simultaneously make the case that these people are just a bunch of elitists and also that they're being reckless. Yeah, they went to the Rose Garden and that event probably did, based on what we know now. It probably was a spreader event where a lot of people did get the coronavirus as a result of that. Maybe it was, maybe it wasn't. We don't know that for sure. But there's a very high likelihood of that taking place. But you can't make the case that they're all being a bunch of elitists that don't care about the average American and that they were also being reckless. Because if they were being reckless, then isn't their behavior what they think everybody else ought to be doing? Like, for example... If you were an elitist, you would be departed from the behavior that other people, that Chris Hayes is deeming dangerous here, just, you know, being a normal human and high-fiving people and hugging people and congratulating them when something good happens. If they were elitists that were, oh, rules for me but not for you, it would be the opposite. They would all be, you know, wearing masks or social distancing or even meeting online or something or not doing these things, but it can't be both at the same time. Either they're a bunch of elitists that are protecting themselves, or they're just acting like they think the American people should because, yes, there is some risk, but it's not that deadly. Your risk, even if you get it, is pretty low. You can't have both of those things working at the same time. But, I mean, Chris Hayes, he's, he's not hired to make sense. He's hired to attack Trump. And so let's watch another clip of him doing just that. For Donald Trump himself and all of his apologists who like to post as independent thinkers, too clever by half, removed from it all, something that every last one of them have done together, other than Supreme Court justices, which cannot be reversed. And that is they have participated in a project that has led to the deaths of probably 100,000 Americans who didn't have to die. Congratulations, you got that done too. That also can't be reversed. They can't come back. We can't undo that. That's the other accomplishment here. Judge Barrett, they traded one for the other. They traded those lies for this justice. And they had a party about it in the Rose Garden, too, now. That's so laughably absurd. I don't even see where he's going with that, that Amy Coney Barrett somehow created 
all these people died. There are 100,000 people in this country that died that didn't have to. Um, ACB was only confirmed a few days ago. So what about all the people that died before then? But anyway, here's what he's actually trying to say. Here's the argument that Chris, I mean, yes, it takes a, uh, you have to be able to do quite a bit of mental gymnastics and have zero common sense to be able to follow this. Uh, so I had to turn off my common sense to be able to figure out where he's going with this. What he's trying to say is that Republicans basically allowed Trump to do uh, whatever he wanted and engage in whatever behavior that he wanted and were not a check on him. And so because of that, they, they were okay with doing that because he gave them a justice that they really liked. And so they made a, a, tr a trade, a deal with the devil. Okay, we'll let all these people die because we're not going to check on Trump because he's going to give us a justice that we want. Here's the problem with that, though. That would, that would be contingent upon every single person in the Republican Party actually already knowing that Ruth Bader Ginsburg was going to die before she did. Because the coronavirus, I mean, those policies started being put in place in February. And Ruth Bader Ginsburg was still alive then, and we, I mean, obviously she was old, but we had no idea that she was going to pass away in time for Trump to get another Supreme Court nomination out of her. It was just as likely for somebody like Justice Clarence Thomas to go, unfortunately, and I hope he doesn't, and I, of course, am sad that Ruth Bader Ginsburg did. But my point in all of that is, we would have had to have known the future to make that trade. And that also assumes that every single Republican doesn't agree with what Donald Trump has done. And by the way, I don't necessarily agree with everything that Trump has done on the coronavirus. There have been points of contention where I thought he did something that he shouldn't have, and Frankly, I think he's been a little bit too overbearing when it comes to the things. I thought he should have been a little bit more on the state's right side, but dang it, he's been pretty close to the state's right side. He hasn't done it exactly the way I would have, but he's he's surprised me on how much he has been willing to let the states kind of take lead on this. And that was something that was quite surprising to me. But you're kind of assuming that every Republican knows that he's really doing all this dangerous stuff and it knows he's doing a bad job. What motive would Trump have for doing a bad job? Do you think Trump just wants people to die? Like, it doesn't make any sense. And then you would also have to assume that there are no Republicans that think that he's actually doing about what he ought to do. I'm sure that there's a lot of people that think that he should have done more, and there's probably a lot of Republicans that also think he should have done less. You've got Republicans on both sides of that spectrum, I'm sure. I know because I've talked to them. But the point of all that is, you're, you're trying to make a connection where there is none. And the idea that they made this trade and that every single Republican, because they're a horrible, nasty, evil person that doesn't care about lives and cares more about justices than lives, don't you know that the reason that people want Amy Coney Barrett and like Amy Coney Barrett is because they're trying to save lives? I mean, yes, the coronavirus is a horrible thing, and people are freaking out that it's causing about a thousand deaths a day. There are 2,700 abortions a day. And one of the main reasons, not the only reason, but one of the main reasons that ACB is a breath of fresh air and something that conservatives and originalists want is because they believe that she will rule the right way on that. Now, is it going to overturn Roe? That's very unlikely with the makeup of the court as it is. But if she did, that would be saving significantly more lives than if she could somehow magically make the coronavirus just poof, go away and snap her fingers, which of course she can't do. And so it is an effort to preserve life in having her. 
you're presuming a whole bunch of things that don't make any sense. But remember, ultimately, this does boil down to what would you have done differently? Because the assertion, of course, here is that Donald Trump did all these terrible, reckless, irresponsible things that caused lots of people to die. Okay, well, what would you have done different? Because the Biden plan sounds almost identical to the Trump plan. Seriously, Chris Hayes, what would you have done different? What would your side have done different? What if Chris Hayes were president? What would you have done that President Trump hasn't? Because the only thing I keep hearing over and over again is either a shutdown or a mask mandate. The problem with that is even the World Health Organization has come back and said that shutdowns are not an effective way to stop the virus. It can slow it, it can stall it, but it can't stop it. Pretty much all the same people that are going to get sick are going to get sick whether you shut down or whether you don't. You shut down, it'll slow it. And that's the reason you may recall that we started the shutdown in the beginning anyway. is because we shut everything down, because we were trying to give our hospitals time to catch up and get the equipment and get a handle on this. Once that happened, we were all supposed to go back to life as normal. And the virus was going to hit, and it was going to hit a lot of people, and it was going to hit very hard, but at least then we would be prepared to deal with it. Now, I'm not going to relitigate all of that. You, you know the story. I don't have to rehash all of this to you. But the point is, shutdowns have been proven, even by people that are very pro-shutdown. Now, we had to admit that basically it's just a delay tactic. It doesn't actually stop people from dying. Well, maybe it's the mask, because that's what I hear when, when they ask Joe Biden basically the same question in a debate. Basically, he said, well, we just need people to wear this mask. What are you going to do, a national mandate? Well, I don't know. I'm not sure. So even Joe Biden is not sure whether or not he would do it. But he's kind of hinted that he would at least be open to mandating masks across the country. Would that help? That becomes the big question then. Well, there's very little evidence that suggests that a mask mandate, maybe masks help, but mask mandates don't seem to. And so let's look at the numbers because so far this has been primarily a state-by-state -state thing. Donald Trump has let, it, uh, has let the states more or less handle this. So let's look at the most deaths per million by state. New Jersey, New York, Massachusetts, Connecticut, Louisiana, Rhode Island, Mississippi, D.C., Arizona, Illinois. Those are the states, and of course D.C. counts in this too, with the most deaths per million. Now, I wonder, how many of these states currently have a mask mandate? Oh! Hmm. Well, it doesn't seem to be keeping the deaths down in these states. And by the way, Mississippi had one for a very long time. They just recently lifted the mask mandate. I don't know as much about Arizona because they're further away. But the point is, you have to get all the way down to number seven and number nine to find a state that does not currently have a mask mandate on the list of most deaths per million. Now, I'm not saying that these are being caused by having a mask mandate, because I don't think that's true either. But by the numbers, it certainly isn't helping. Now, let's look at the states with the least deaths per million. So again, adjusted for population. Vermont, that's the least. Maine, Alaska, Wyoming, Hawaii, Oregon, Utah, West Virginia, Washington, and Nebraska. How many of these have mask mandates? Still a majority, 
still six, but less than the eight on the list of the deaths with the most. Now, do I think that the masks are causing people to die or causing people not to die? No, I don't believe that. And I've never said that. But my point is, there doesn't seem to be a correlation. There doesn't seem to be any connection between whether you have a mask mandate and whether people die or not, because the masks do not save lives. It doesn't even really seem to have an effect on how many people get infected or not. I mean, maybe it has some minor one, but the mask mandate, certainly there's no mathematic proof or really even evidence that they stop the spread of coronavirus. It's simply not there. And so the two things that they can point to, well, I would have done a shutdown, and I would still say shutdown, but even the World Health Organization is saying that wouldn't stop people from dying, it would just delay it. And the second one, mask mandates, well, the numbers show that that doesn't really help you either. So I don't know what you're going to do there. The thing is, when Chris Hayes doing what he does here is arguing against the hypothetical, when the hypothetical other here when there's a hypothetical other of a world where Donald Trump wasn't president and someone else was and they did something different, you better give really, really good conclusive evidence as to why the hypothetical would happen and what currently happens doesn't. Now, unfortunately, most humans don't operate on logic, and because of that, they don't understand that concept. So this probably does draw in at least some people. Some voters probably get caught up in this. I was like, oh, yeah, if Donald Trump wasn't president, it'd be so much better. Why? What would have been done differently? And how would what you did differently, how would that have affected the numbers? Because if you can't prove that, and if all the evidence actually points to the opposite, then I'm afraid I can't take it very seriously. Furthermore, th this is the best one out of all of them. I really like this clip. This is from Senator Markey. And his testimony, or his uh, speech from the well, talking about the confirmation of the notorious ACB. Originalism is just a fancy word for discrimination. <laughs> it has become a hazy smokescreen for judicial activism by so-called conservatives to achieve from the bench what they cannot accomplish through the ballot box. Oh, that's right. The activists, correct. originalists, judges on the Supreme Court, and lawyers in its legal community are poised to repeal the Affordable Care Act, deny reproductive freedom, and repeal same-sex marriage, they will welcome a Justice Barrett and a 6-3 to three conservative majority with open arms. You know, it takes talent to be that wrong in such a short amount of time. I counted at least four errors in there, so I'll try to hit all of them really quickly. First of all, we don't have a 6-3 a conservative majority. We have a 4-3-2. So there are four reliable conservative votes. There are two in the middle in Kavanaugh and, and Gorsuch, not Kavanaugh and Gorsuch, Kavanaugh and um, Chief Justice Roberts. And then you've got three reliably liberal justices. And so the idea that there is a six to three conservative majority, first of all, the four conservatives on the court, they're not even really conservatives. They're just originalists. They believe in the Constitution. They believe it as it is written. Frankly, I wouldn't care if somebody was a gay transvestite lizard person that voted Democrat in every single election. If they were going to interpret the Constitution as written, I'd be fine with them being a justice, because that's their job. 
I wouldn't be fine with that person being my representative in the House or the Senate because they're not going to reflect my values when they make laws. But a justice doesn't make laws. This is something that they really need to understand about originalism. First of all, the effects that it has on people, not important, because that's not what it's supposed to do. When you're a lawmaker, how it affects people is far more important than the intention. For example, with the Clean Air and Clean Water Act, I believe that the intention of the Democrats that put that law together was very, very good. That they fully intended for it to just generically be something that we have to have clean air and clean water and they weren't getting real specific. They left that up to the, uh, the agencies in the executive branch to handle that and to define that. I believe their intent was good, but their effect was abysmal. It cost millions upon millions in the economy, thousands of American jobs. It increased the debt by increasing the amount of money we had to spend for things like the EPA, so on and so forth. And so intent is not that important in that situation. The results are. For judges, it's the exact opposite. For them, intent really doesn't mean anything. Or sorry, um, intent is absolutely everything. And how it affects people doesn't matter. Is it constitutional? Is it not constitutional? That's a judge's job, and that's it. They're not supposed to look at, for example, somebody that's really, really upset and go, yeah, well, I know that this doesn't, it doesn't comport with the Constitution, but we're going to do it anyway because we feel real sorry for you. No, that's not what a judge is supposed to do. A judge is supposed to determine whether something is according to the law or not. That's it. That's the only thing they're supposed to do. And so it's the exact opposite of the way it works with a lawmaker. And this is what originalism is. So you would not read, for example, a you wouldn't read A Tale of Two Cities by Charles Dickens and say, oh, well, this is obviously a metaphor that Dickens is trying to communicate to us about racial injustice in America in the year 2020. Because that would be dumb. And you would be misinterpreting the passage there you would be missing the historical context. And because of that, you would probably get a very different message than the one that Dickens intended to write. He wrote that down when he did because he was trying to communicate a message to the person. And so it doesn't even necessarily have to be law. Originalism is merely the idea that the law means exactly what it would have meant to the person writing it and to the person receiving it, which is the correct way to interpret literally any written text, whether it's law or not. The Lord of the Rings, for example. Are there applications you can make? Sure. Can you extrapolate a moral truth from something that J.R.R. Tolkien wrote and apply it to your life today? Yeah, you can do that. But to say that J.R.R. Tolkien was writing this as some kind of political commentary on what was going on in America today, that is stupid. There might be some lessons we could learn from it, and make some applications to our lives today. But that's not what J.R.R. Tolkien was writing about. Because he was British and wasn't alive back then. And he couldn't have possibly known all those things when he wrote that. And so that's all originalism is. It's not a guise for discrimination. I've seen this argument made over and over again too. It's like, well, if you are an originalist, then you just want things to go back exactly the way they were in 1776 when we had slaves, right? Yeah, well, first of all, you moron, that's not when the Constitution was written. It was written significantly after 
1776 and 1786 and wasn't fully ratified until 1789. And so usually when I see people like this trying to make this argument, this is about their level of knowledge about history. And second of all, those were ratified at that specific time. But the thing that you're kind of forgetting is that we've also had constitutional amendments that came after that. Like, you know, the 14th Amendment, the 19th Amendment. And originalism doesn't say we need to understand it the way they would have in 1789. Originalism says we need to understand it the way that the author intended it. So if we're looking at, for example, the 14th Amendment, then we need to look at what post-Civil War America looked like to understand what that text would have meant to them. And that's what originalism actually is. It's not, a, it's not some kind of guise for discrimination or anything. It just says that the law says what it says. If you don't like what the law says, that's fine. Pass a new law. Don't just try to reimagine the law and recraft it in your image because that's not the way that this is supposed to work. And what's hilarious is he ends all that by saying they are doing this so that they can achieve through the judiciary what they can't do through the ballot box. It's actually the exact reverse because originalism is the interpretation of something that did pass through the ballot box. That's all that is. And so if you are an originalist, you believe that the ballot box does matter because those laws were passed by representatives at a time that were elected by the people that elected them. If you don't believe in originalism, you believe that you can just read into the law whatever you want, then the ballot box doesn't really matter to you because you can have a judge just read the law in any way that they want it to. They can make it say something completely different than what the law actually says. So it's hilarious to me that he's saying, well, they're just trying to get their agenda done through the ballot box. Uh, no, that's what the... And, antithesis of originalism is. We're the ones that actually do care what the American people said and, and said at the time. And if you want to change the law, that's your prerogative. You have to win at the ballot box to do that. You can't just do it through judicial fiat. So really all of it is, is insane, but all these people, the thing that they have in common is they're all upset that the Constitution might actually be enforced. That scares the mess out of them. And I think that's very telling about where their heart is and, and what their philosophy actually is, is that they are terrified that there might be somebody that actually believes that the Constitution says what it says and means what it says and will interpret it a, a, accordingly to that. That scares the mess out of them because they don't like the Constitution. They don't want it to be understood the way it was intended to understood. They want the judiciary to just be a rubber stamp to whatever crazy leftist thing that they want next. So I think that's the reason that they're so scared of Amy Coney Barrett is because she's basically the embodiment of all the things that the left has been telling us for years cannot be done. You, you can't believe in natural law. You can't be a woman that's strong and independent, but also submissive to her husband and has a great family and is very successful in her career. I mean, yes, obviously there are trade-offs and sacrifices and everything, but Amy Coney Barrett is not just the antithesis to their judicial philosophy or the things that they would want. She's also the antithesis of their entire worldview, and that's why they can't stand her. Let's go to the chaplain's report. In 1775, the Continental Congress created the Chaplain Corps under the command of General George Washington 
Each soldier was required to attend worship service every Sunday. While other armies advanced on their feet, Washington's troops advanced on their knees. It's time for the Chaplain's Report with Caleb Colquitt on tactics. Chaplain's Report today, we are continuing our series in 1 Samuel. And this, this one comes from Samuel 18, 1 Samuel 18, 10 through 11. And the only thing you really need to, to fully grasp and comprehend to understand where we are in this particular passage is that Samuel has, um, uh, that, that um, sorry, Samuel, Saul has really kind of the envy of David has start, started to set in and he started to act very erratically as a result of that. Oh, that's actually the, the wrong passage, so I'm just going to read this one straight. So 1 Samuel 18, verses 10 through 11. Now it came about on the next day that an evil spirit from God rushed upon Saul, and he raved in the midst of his house while David was playing the harp with his hand as usual, and a spear was in Saul's hand. Then Saul hurled the spear, for he thought, I will pin David to the wall. But David escaped from his presence twice. find that interesting? I do, because especially at this point in time, at this point in human history, Saul's the king. Why didn't he just kill him? Why didn't he just openly kill him and admit that he wanted to kill him because he could get away with it because he was the king? Why didn't Saul just order some of his men to go out and kill David? This would not have been a ridiculous thing or something that was unprecedented in the ancient world. It happened all the time. Once you saw anybody as a rival to your throne, nobody would have thought twice for you just going and eliminating them. Saul still has a conscience. Saul still has a sense of what's right and wrong. As far as he has fallen, as badly as his character has been maimed at this point, Saul still believes in right and wrong. He does. He still believes that there are certain things that he is supposed to do. He still understands that killing David would be incorrect. And I think probably the most important thing here is Saul understands that even though he's king, he has limitations and there are things that he's not supposed to do. Even though he has been burned many times by doing things his own way as opposed to doing it God's way, he does still instinctively understand there are certain things he is not supposed to do. And he knows that killing David would be wrong. The problem is, instead of that manifesting itself in him doing the right thing, he does what will be perceived as the right thing. This is Saul's character flaw. You, you could almost say it was his singular character flaw because all of the problems, all the bad things that Saul does all seem to go back to he just cares way too much about what other people think about him. Saul did not want people to think that he's a bad, jealous person that was going to kill David just for the heck of it because he was jealous about his prestige and he didn't want a rival to his throne. Saul doesn't want that. And that's why he tries to act as though, oh, an evil spirit has taken over me. Ah, I'm going to kill David with a spear. 
he tries to play it off as though he's not the villain. And I think that's because Saul, even though he's not willing to actually take the hard step and do the right thing, he genuinely doesn't want to be, and he doesn't see himself as a villain. I think it's the same problem that we find ourselves in a lot. We know that something we're doing is wrong, but we think, well, because nobody knows about it, and because nobody can see that I'm doing it, no one will think poorly about me, then I can go ahead and do it. I can get away with it. It's a bad idea. Never works out well. Because God always knows. God knew what was in Saul's heart. He knew exactly what Saul was trying to do here. But unfortunately, Saul was so jealous, so envious, so prideful, so envious of David and, and so eager to protect his throne, he is willing to kill a person that has been nothing but kind and helpful to him. And ultimately, that was not something that was going to be easily overcome. This passage continues on in 1 Samuel 18, verses 12 through 13. Now Saul was afraid of David, because the Lord was with him, but had left Saul. <clears throat> so Saul removed him from his presence and appointed him as his commander of a thousand. And he went out and came before the people. It's an interesting strategy. I'm just going to let the Philistines kill him. I'm going to send him out as a commander. I'm going to send him out to battle over and over again, and hopefully David will wind up dying at some point. Why is this? Why does Saul, why is he so desperate to see David dead? It's because nothing bothers someone that has fallen from grace, somebody that used to be in God's good favor and now isn't, than seeing somebody that still is. Nothing bothers a fallen Christian more than a faithful Christian. Because unlike somebody that's never been a Christian, the fallen Christian knows that that person is living the way that they're supposed to. Saul understands that David is doing what Saul's supposed to be doing now. And nothing makes a fake look more fake than having the real deal set up next to it. Like fake diamonds, usually it's hard to tell whether it's fake or not. And then when you put a real diamond next to it, you can kind of see, or at least better understand, even to somebody who's not an expert in that stuff, once you can see the real thing and what that's supposed to look like, it's a lot easier to spot the fake. That's what David is to Saul. He's the real diamond. Saul's just pretending to be. And because he is aware of that and understands how that looks to other people, Saul decides that we got to do something to get rid of David. Let's look at 1 Samuel 18, 14 through 16. David was successful in all his ways, for the Lord was with him. When Saul saw that he was very successful, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David, for he would go out into battle and return before them. Isn't it amazing? Even Saul's plot to kill David worked in David's favor. Saul was so greedy and so angry of David's prestige that his reaction to this was send him out to battle so that he would die and not be a rival to him anymore. And what does that do? What is the end result? 
that David gets more famous and more popular, and the people love him even more now than they did beforehand because Saul was so angry that he was gaining more fame and notoriety that he decided the best way to deal with that was just to eliminate him. How How incredible is that? That even a plot against David's life worked out in his favor. This is a common theme throughout the Scripture. We'll even see it, for example, in the book of Esther. We already did a series on that before. Where even the people that were plotting against the Jews, it wound up, their plans wound up helping the Jews in the end. You see, when God is with you, your enemies don't just lose. They don't stand a chance. Even the things that they do to try to hurt you only help your cause, only further God's will. You can choose to serve God's will in one of two ways. You can either help facilitate it, or you can work against it. But you're going to be fulfilling His will one way or the other. That's not optional. Because when God is with you, your enemies really don't stand a chance. Everything that they do only helps your cause. You see, it wasn't just Saul's sin, but also David's righteousness that caused this to come to effect. Because that strategy or that thing that God helped cause to happen, the providence of of David succeeding and being good and and gaining fame and notoriety and and gaining favor with the people, that worked partly because God was working against Saul, but also because David was working for God as well. He had an incredible sense of duty. He was doing the best that he could for his country and to defend God's kingdom and his people. And so all those things worked in tandem. Yeah, Saul's sin was part of the cause of it, but you know what? David doing the right thing was a big part of it too. And I think that's really the message of the day. We can't control what other people do. In a couple days, we're going to be voting, and there are going to be a lot of people that make very bad decisions in voting. We can't control that. As Gandalf would say, all you can do is decide what to do with the time that is given to you. Stay the course, friends. Tactics with Caleb Colquitt. Only on News Radio 1440 and NewsRadio1440.com.